I, um, am, I'm nourished by that song, The Resurrecting King is Resurrecting Me. And um, have you come here this morning with some burden on your heart? Um, are, you, are you burdened uh, by health? Are you burdened by the uncertainty of your future? Are you burdened by uh, work situation? Are you, are you burdened by grieving over a death? Are you burdened here today? If you've come here burdened, I, I want you to know there is not a problem. There's not a problem we can face that an empty tomb can't fix. And that's why we've gathered here today to realize that no matter what our problem is, no matter how we're burdened, that we worship and serve someone who is living and his reality is real reality, and that gives us hope. Amen. Glad to have you here this morning, church family, and if you're here for the first time, I'm Randy, and um, I'm uh, privileged to be the lead minister here at the church. And as a part of our time in family worship, in corporate worship, we have uh, uh, just a group Bible study. And that's what's happening here right now. We're going to have a group Bible study. We usually uh, take a book of the Bible, and we are currently in a small letter, 25 verses, 335-word letter to Philemon. It's a series titled um, Bridges, Multi-Ethnic Conversations. Multi-Ethnic Conversations. Someone asked me uh, recently, Randy, You've been using that word a lot lately. What's that about? Can you explain that? I'd like to take a few minutes to do that, if I could. Uh, why, why this word? Why this emphasis? Where did this come from? Um, let me give you three reasons. Preachers like to talk in threes, so here are three reasons, okay? The first reason is just personal. It's just a very personal reason. The Lord, in His mercy, has... Uh, given me a significant relationships, and by that I mean relationships with minority culture, uh, in family, uh, in my church family, in friendships and teachers and mentors, both in and outside uh, this congregation. And these relationships have shaped me as a Christian, and I am nowhere near where I'd like to be when it uh, comes to cultural competency, but I feel like I'm farther along than uh, where I was. And just so you know, next February, I'm even going to be further along because I would like for you all to meet my grandchild, number two. So anyway, um, so my older son, Benjamin, our daughter-in-law, Ablaza, uh, so it, it was Facebook official yesterday, so I'm telling y'all, all right? And I've uh, been trying to keep it in here for the past several weeks, but uh, anyway, so we're just delighted. So, it's, so this, uh, this um, sensitivity to God's leading in my life and our congregation's life uh, just toward... Um, um, uh, Revelation 7, 9, and 10, I'll share that verse later, is it affects me on a personal level. So that's one reason. The second reason is on an evangelistic level. So we have an opportunity. God has given us an opportunity to witness to and to testify to the truth of Christianity, persuading 
an extremely partisan world that there is a better way to live and there's a better way to relate and it is the way of love, the way of Christ. And when God's people uh, consisting of the nations come together uh, in worship and when they gather for no other reason than Jesus, then I'm telling you, there is a, a beauty and a sweetness that this world cannot match. And that kind of leads me to a question that someone recently asked me. Well, Randy, should every, ver- should every church be diverse? And here's my answer. Every church should be as diverse as their community. A local church should look like its local community. That's, that's my response. And so in our situation, and you can pick up a, a booklet that uh, kind of talks about the uh, next couple of years initiatives so the world will know. In our community, I'm going to be rounding numbers here, uh, Caucasian, 68%. This is according to the 2010 census. Uh, African American, 16%. Asian, 11%. Latino, 7%. Pacific Islander, uh, 0.1%. Native American, 0.3%. So ideally, uh, uh, just uh, God's beauty and love would be expressed uh, in a local congregation that reflects this level of diversity. A local church should look like its local community. Now, by the end of this decade, according to the Census Bureau, minority children will be the majority of kids in the U.S., Did you know that? By the end of this decade, minority children will be the majority of kids in the U.S. And by the year 2042, by the year 2042, um, which is not very far away, in the United States, the United States will consist of, will be a majority-minority nation, meaning more collective minorities than the historically white majority. This is not something to tolerate, This is something to celebrate, especially as we consider this beauty expressed in and through the local church. And when that happens, the the world, when, when the world sees our unity and love and peace and oneness, the world will get curious. Who is this God you're worshiping? And we can tell them, all right? So there's a personal reason, there's an evangelistic reason, and there's a biblical reason, a biblical reason. Now, Christian churches like to self-identify with the first century New Testament church. And that's something that historically Christian churches in America have, um, uh, have promoted. And, well, it's great on certain doctrinal points to say, yeah, we identify with the New Testament church. But you've got to go beyond that, I believe, to the actual dynamics and the relationships. And that means recognizing, acknowledging, and knowing that the New Testament church, the churches in the ancient world of Antioch and Rome and Ephesus and Corinth consisted of many ethnicities. In Acts 13.1, in Antioch, leadership diverse. Uh, in Rome, Greek and Hebrew Christians, the Christian community in Ephesus. So if we are going to call ourselves a church patterned after the New Testament church, uh, the, we need to reflect this. 
especially in a community like ours. In Acts 17.26, the Apostle Paul said, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. In other words, what Paul was saying is, All who come from Adam are my kind. All. Do you come from Adam? Then you're my kind. You're my kind. And... And our destiny is Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Why white robes? Because it's a symbol in Revelation language of purity and forgiven sin, with palm branches. What's that a symbol of? Glory and praise and celebration. Celebration. Crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So those are the three reasons for me. Personal, evangelistic, biblical. Our goal, our vision as a church is to be a life-changing community of the nations who together passionately pursue Christ. Now, our goal is not merely multi-ethnicity. You see, it's possible to have a multi-ethnic congregation that is not unified in Christ. So, a multi-ethnic congregation and gospel unity are not automatically the same. It's possible to have a diverse church of people who annoy each other. <laughs> and who wants that? <laughs> not me. And not the Lord. God's will is brothers and sisters in Christ coming from every nation as one family in Christ who love Christ and love the peace of Christ because love makes all the difference. Love makes all the difference. And one of the ways that we protect and nourish love and peace is by making amends whenever there's conflict. 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 Who knows anything about conflict? Anybody ever had conflict in marriage? Huh? What about conflict in family? Conflict at work? You know, conflict with that extra grace required person? conflict, all right? Now listen, <laughs> what would ever make you think, what would ever make you think that you would go to those places where there's conflict and then you'd come to this place in this gathering room and there would not be conflict, okay? <laughs> all right? <laughs> Do you know what the common denominator is in all of those scenarios? You. And me, us. This is a sinful, broken, fallen world, okay? And everybody thinks that's true until it happens to them. But yeah, you come here, and if you're here long enough, 
I promise you, you'll be in conflict with someone. I mean, you can't escape that, this side of heaven. So the question isn't, you know, uh, you know um, is there going to be conflict? That's not the question. The question is, how's it going to get dealt with? All right? How's it going to get dealt with? And the answer is, um, the answer has to do with our passage of Scripture today. So if you have your Bibles, I would like you to turn to Paul's letter to Philemon. It's the smallest letter of Paul's collection of letters. You'll find it on page 1,000 of your uh, church Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible to call your own, please take the Bible out of the pouch and um, put your name in it, and it's yours as a gift from this church. We want to look through the story of Philemon. Now, the letter to Philemon brings together three very different cultures. You've got Paul, who is a Hebrew scholar. He's a, a, a Roman citizen. He's a Pharisee, once Christianity's most feared enemy. Now, the leading apostle. Then you've got Philemon, who's not Hebrew. He's ethnically different. He's um, a Greek Gentile. He's a successful business owner. His home is large enough to house the church. Uh, he's a slave owner. And that takes us to Onesimus, who is one of Philemon's slaves. Slaves were the lowest class. In Rome. And these three were brought together because of a conflict. Onesimus was a fugitive slave. And apparently he fled to Rome where a third of the city was slaves. He wanted to become invisible in this sea of slaves in the capital. But somehow, through God's providence, he met Paul under house arrest. Acts 28 in Rome, awaiting trial before the emperor. And Paul converted Onesimus to Jesus. And Onesimus then began to serve the Lord by joining Paul's team until one day Paul said, Onesimus, you have to go back. You need to make peace with Philemon. So I want us to pay attention to these verses through the perspective of Onesimus. And I'm asking the question, what's... What's God asking of Onesimus in these verses? What is God asking of me when I am the offender? What's God asking? Why does this matter? What's the significance? That's question number two. And then three, how does this apply to us today? So this is a what, so what, now what message. And so I want to read verses 10 through 16 to that end. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this 
Perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is God's word. So what does God want us to learn from Onesimus? What is God asking of Onesimus? And it's simply this. God wants us to protect and promote the peace of Christ by making amends when we offend others. So let me put it this way. For the sake of peace, own your peace. For the sake of peace, God wants us to own our peace. For the sake of peace, own your peace. Now, I know how this works, all right? When we think about owning our peace, we kind of think of this pie chart here, right? It, you know, 50-50, that's kind of, you know, that, well, that's how we, how we would like to think, but you know that that's not realistic, right? It's not. That's not, that's not really what's going on. Okay, Uh, uh, when we're considering making amends, we don't even do, we don't even go to the next step where, you know, it's, you know, 75% there. Yeah, I had a little bit to do it, but mainly they had more to do it. I may be a little guilty, but, but she's more guilty or he's more guilty. You know, we don't even, we don't even go there. Let me tell you where we really go. That's where we go. See, that's where we go. And... Yeah, I mean, heaven giggles. For the sake of peace, you got to own your peace. Your peace. Your peace. That's the what. Now, I've got to just interrupt myself because there's just something about that in this letter that just annoys me about the Apostle Paul. I have to confess. And, and, and it comes in the form of this question. Why didn't Paul just say to Onesimus, flee, man, escape, enjoy your freedom, I'll see you in heaven. In other words, what business does Philemon, whose church meets at his house, what business does Philemon have owning slaves? I mean, there's just something about that that does not make sense to this American. And of course, it's because I'm reading this story from the prism of my own history as a citizen in a democratic republic whose declaration of independence said that all men are created equal, yet in practice some are more equal than others. And it's easy to read Philemon under the assumption that first century slavery was an earlier version of American slavery. So I did some research and discovered several differences. I'm not sharing these differences to in any way attempt to justify slavery in any empire. I just am a learner, and I want to know if there were any differences. And my research showed me that there are differences. Let me just mention three. The first is this. In first century Rome, slavery was racially diverse. So the institution in Roman times consisted not just of one race, but multiple races. Rome did not discriminate. 
In the first century, a person might enter slavery in one of three ways. Uh, first, by being a prisoner of war, a POW, or by military capture. And uh, so a conquered people uh, might be subject to the conquering nation, Rome, and part of that meant that at least some became slaves, a POW. Number two, birth to a slave mother. Birth to a slave mother. So it didn't uh, matter uh, about the number of children. If a mother happened to be a slave, uh, then any offspring would also be slaves. And then a third way that they would become slaves in the Roman Empire was being sold into slavery, uh, including those who would sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off debt because there was no such thing as bankruptcy laws in the empire and debt had to be paid and so, so people would sell themselves into slavery. Uh, my point is that Roman slavery was racially diverse. Secondly, in first century Rome, slavery was vocationally diverse. Vocationally diverse. Uh, so slaves worked in multiple occupations. Yes, there were the dreaded salt mines. But in the urban centers, you would find slaves in accounting, in finance, in medicine, in education, in construction. And I, by that, I don't merely mean labor. Uh, I mean labor, architecture, design, engineering, uh, business management, agriculture, government. One scholar cataloged 120 different jobs that slaves did. And many were also done by those who were free. In fact, it boggled my mind uh, when I discovered that some slaves had a higher standard of living than some free citizens in the Roman Empire. And strangely enough, there were under-slaves of slaves. So, there was racial diversity, there was vocational diversity, and then the third difference is uh, there was an exit strategy. Murray Harris is a New Testament scholar who has written an excellent book called Slave of Christ, and in it he explores the metaphor slave in the New Testament, but as a part of that work he talks about slavery in the Roman Empire, and he notes that on average in the major cities of the Roman Empire, um, slaves were manumitted, manumitted meaning that they were able to either purchase their freedom or they were given their freedom, they were released on average, after between 10 to 20 years. So that's, of course, different than American slavery where it was lifetime from generation to generation. So first century slavery in Rome was a, was a different kind of beast than the racialist slavery of the American experience. And, and there, there were no free provinces versus slave provinces. The institution was ingrained in the empire. And so if someone were to have cried out in first century Rome, slaves of the world unite, uh, it would have been followed with, huh? So it was a different beast. But let's be clear, it was still a beast. And while a free person might serve someone, a slave belonged to someone. A slave was therefore rightless. A slave did not possess the power of refusal. 
In fact, the letter to Philemon proves that pursuing freedom was a priority to slaves, even at the risk of beating, branding, or crucifixion. So back to my question that annoys me about Paul. Why would Paul send Onesimus back to Philemon? What was he thinking? Was he just trying to be a good law-abiding citizen of the empire? Was he just trying to, you know, protect, you know, his own legal situation with Rome under house arrest? I don't think so. According to this text, the reason why Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon is in verses 15 to 16. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. So from Paul's perspective, he's not sending a slave back to be reconciled to a slave owner. He's returning a brother in Christ to be reconciled to another brother in Christ. Paul isn't so much recognizing the Roman emperor as much as he is acknowledging the resurrected emperor, the high king over heaven and earth. Onesimus, you've got to go back and make peace with Philemon, not primarily because he is your master, but because Christ is your master. And Philemon is your brother. And, and if you want to serve the Lord in ministry, if you want to join my ministry team, you have to do so with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And that's why I'm sending you back. Christ's spirit lives in you, Onesimus. And, and Christ's spirit lives in Philemon. And the church that meets needs to see the exchange of the spirit's grace between the two of you. If you want peace, you've got to own your peace. That's the what. The why is... Well, why, why can't he just ask God to forgive him? Why can't he just pray to God about it? Why does he have to go back in person? See? Well, this leads us to a fundamental, irreducible truth about making peace, and it's simply this. Peace will never heal what has not been acknowledged. Peace will never heal what has not been acknowledged. When a brother or sister in Christ has been wounded by sin, by gossip, by lies, by adultery, by abuse, by racism, by ageism, by sexism, when a wound occurs and another brother or sister acknowledges this, there is an opportunity for healing. I witnessed this personally Tuesday evening when about 40 from our church gathered in the cafe for an evening of relationship building. And um, that the conversations that took place in groups of 8 to 12, we just got to know each other. We uh, told our stories. We listened to our stories. And part of those stories included hurts inflicted in the work environment. Um, and those of us who listened just acknowledged the pain. And, and as I listened, I, you know, I, my heart grew heavy. I, 
I need to be reminded how difficult it is for you all in your work environment. I need to be reminded that, you know, you know, I work with Christians, right? Some of you do. Most of you don't. And as I listen to one story uh, about a, a clearly um, racist encounter upon one of our family in church, I just, I got heavy. And at the same time, there was healing. And now I know what to pray for. Now I know what to pray for. Peace will heal when there's been an acknowledgement. But we can't stop there. Because the letter to Philemon is about a brother who has been hurt by another brother. And you know, if you're not a Christian, you may not agree that there's even been an offense because of what I said just a little while ago about the slavery issue in Rome. But, but the principle still stands in principle. You cannot make peace without owning your peace, and you cannot own your peace if you don't acknowledge it. So, you know, what happens when someone's been hurt by my sin? Well, you know, all sin is ultimately against God. So we need to go to God. We need to confess to God. He will cleanse us. And we must never forget that because we have been made in the image of God, the one I hurt has real value. The one I hurt is a human. The one I hurt is God's image bearer. So God's word is clear. Make it right with the one you've hurt. The one you've hurt is not a nobody. We cannot say that we have fully admitted a thing to God if we've not admitted it to another person. And our response may be, well, I just, I can't do that. That would be so humiliating. Well, yeah. But how can I say I'm sorry to God if I'm not willing to say I'm sorry to the person I've hurt when that person is my equal, my fellow creature, my kind? All who come from Adam are my kind. Such a repentance is meaningless hypocrisy. And that's why there's so much deadness in our souls. You just can't trample human relationships and then expect your relationship to God to be lovely and beautiful and open. So you go and you say, I am sorry. And to do that is to enter through the low door, first in confessing to God and to the individual involved. And this person to whom I'm making amends is human made in God's image. So in fact, it's not a low door after all, is it? Because it involves the willingness to admit my equality with the one I've hurt. Being equal makes it perfectly right that I should want to say, I'm sorry. Only the, the desire to be superior makes me afraid to confess and apologize. If I'm living in a real relationship with a triune God, my human relationships become more important in one way because I see God's image in you. And they become less important because I no longer need to be God in those relationships.
Don't you see, in Christ's kingdom, sin and failure are not an occasion for punishment, but grace. Paul sends Onesimus back, assuming that the Spirit lives in him, and that Spirit is the same Spirit who lives in Philemon, and therefore this is an opportunity to experience grace. And it's an opportunity for the church to witness this exchange. And Onesimus needs to trust that the Spirit of God will work in the life of his brother and then that the future will take care of itself. Will Philemon free him? I don't know. I, you know, I think that's what Paul would like, which is why we read what we read in verse 21. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. But Paul leaves that issue to the Holy Spirit's work in and through Onesimus, Philemon, and the church. See, see, grace opens possibilities that would otherwise not occur, which is what we read when Paul says in Ephesians, now to him who is able to do far more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power at work in us. You will only have peace by owning your peace. And you can only own your peace by acknowledging it to the one you have offended. Now what? So how do we do that? Well, that's what I want to spend the rest of our time with. And there's a wonderful curriculum our elders utilize this. Um, our staff uh, utilize this. And it comes from an author named Ken Sandy. Uh, it's a book called The Peacemaker. And so I submit to you seven A's of making amends. Uh, the A's, the words are on your outline. And let's just go through them. Number one, address everyone involved address everyone involved. So as a general rule, you should confess your sins to every person who has been directly affected by your wrongdoing. So yes, of course, confess to God. But whether a sin should be confessed to other people as well as to God depends on whether it was a heart sin or a social sin. Okay? So a heart sin takes place only in your thoughts and does not directly affect others. So, so that just needs to be confessed to God. So in other words, if, you know, I come up to a brother in Christ and I say, brother, I want you to know I want to apologize to you because for the last seven years I've been coveting your classic automobile. I mean, I'm telling you, it just... I just have been seething with envy and rage, and, and I've just been oh, just maniacal about the fact that, that you get to have these classic cars, and I don't get to have these classic cars, and, 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 and it's just, it's just been seething with rage. And, so, and, 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 you know, my brother in Christ is going, I didn't know you were that mad at me, you know. Now it's awkward, right? See? See the, so heart sins, I need to go to God with that. Now, if I take my key and key his door with, you know, yeah, yeah, then that's a social sin, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, that's a social sin, and I, I need to do something about that, so, so if I, if I act, if I speak uh, um, offense 
against my brother or sister in Christ. I need to own that, and then I need to take responsibility for that. So confess your social sins to the one whom you have hurt. Your confession should reach as far as your offense. Address everyone involved. Number two, avoid if, but, and maybe. The best way to ruin a confession is to use words that shift the blame to others or minimize your guilt. And the most common way to do this is through the word if. Right? Well, I'm sorry if I've done something to offend you. Obviously, you're upset about something. I don't know if I've done anything wrong, but just to get you off my back, I'll apologize. And by the way, since I don't know whether or not I've really done anything wrong, I certainly don't know what I should do differently in the future, so don't expect me to change. It's just a matter of time for I'll do the same thing again. Now, does anybody feel any better? <laughs> See? Tony Evans once said, if it contains an if, it ain't a confession. Right? So get rid of if, or perhaps, or maybe from your apologies, okay? Which leads me to number three, admit specifically. So the more detailed and specific you are when making a confession, the more likely you are to reconcile. So in Onesimus' case, he would confess, he would admit specifically, Philemon, I've been useless. I ran, I took, I'm at fault. All right? So, you know, instead of just saying, well, I know I'm not much of an employee, you might say, you know, I, I've had some very negative attitudes that have turned into actions which are critical and disruptive, and it was wrong of me to criticize your work in front of others yesterday. And those kinds of words show that you realize that what you did wasn't just a minor error in judgment, but a serious violation of God's will. Number four, acknowledge the hurt. Acknowledge the hurt. And that sounds like this. You must have been terribly embarrassed when I said those things in front of everyone. I am very sorry I did that to you. I can see why you were frustrated when I didn't deliver the parts on time. I am sorry that I failed to keep my commitment to you. And once their feelings have been acknowledged and you, they see that you regret what you've done, most people will be willing to move forward with forgiveness. Number five, accept the consequences. Accept the consequences. So do you remember in the parable of the prodigal son, after acknowledging that he had sinned against God and his father, the prodigal son said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So similarly, if you have violated an employer's trust, you may need to say, you know, you have every right to fire me because of what I've done, and I wouldn't blame you if you did. Or if you damage someone's property, you may need to say, you know, it'll, it'll take me some time to earn the extra money, but I will see that your property is repaired and replaced as quickly as possible. Or, or if you help spread false information about someone, you know, you could say, starting tonight, I will call every person I've talked to and I will admit that my statements were not true. So the harder you work at making restitution and repair for damage that you've caused, the easier it will be for others to believe your confession and be reconciled to you. And then number six, alter your behavior. Alter your behavior. And another sign of making amends is to explain to the person you offended how you plan to alter your behavior in the future. And I think that's helpful if we can learn these words. With God's help, 
I plan to. With God's help, I plan to. And, and listing specific goals helps remind you what you've committed yourself to. And it provides a standard by which your progress can be measured. Accountability is my friend. And then number seven, ask for forgiveness. This is where we make the ask. Ask for forgiveness and allow time. So, so will you forgive me? It's an important question. And we need to be careful not to use this question as a means of pressuring someone into forgiving you. Some people have been really hurt. And, you know, they're just not ready. And so it may be helpful to say something like this. I know that I have deeply hurt you. I can understand why you would have a hard time forgiving me. And I hope that soon you'll be able to. I want there to be peace between us. If there's anything else I can do, I, help me. I, I want to know. Please let me know. All right. Well, those are seven. Here's a bonus step. Here's a bonus step. It doesn't start with A. Sorry. Keep short accounts. Keep short accounts. If you're a parent, if you're a team leader, if you're the boss, team captain, one of the best practices you can do is to create a culture where you keep short accounts. And we really strive to do this on our church staff. And what it looks like is this. If one of you senses something that's just off kilter in your relationships, you know, don't ignore it. Don't stew about it. Acknowledge it. Press into it. And it sounds something like this. You know, I feel like I was too passionate in my last conversation with you or in our meeting, and I, I think it got too personal. I want to keep short accounts. Is everything okay between the two of us? Is everything okay between the two of us? That is a no-lose question. Because you see, if everything is okay, then it shows that you want to keep short accounts and if not, then there's the opportunity to make peace. The healthiest groups, the healthiest churches, the healthiest families, the healthiest marriages, the healthiest relationships are not conflict-free. They're just extremely disciplined about keeping short accounts. If you want peace, you've got to own your peace. You, you cannot expect God to cover what you are not willing to uncover. In her book, The Art of the Public Grovel, Susan Bauer makes a distinction between an apology and a confession. She writes, an apology is an expression of regret. I am sorry. A confession is an admission of fault. I am sorry because I did wrong. I sinned. An apology addresses an audience. A confession implies an inner change that will be manifested in an outward action. If you want peace, you've got to own your peace. Are you at peace? Are you at peace in all your relationships? As far as it depends on you. As far as it depends on you. 
someone might say, what if that person doesn't forgive me? You know what? You can't control that. That's not, that's not on you. You do what only you do. Paul did not know for certain how Philemon would respond. And like a father sending his own son to an uncertain future, not knowing but trusting, Onesimus went. And you know why Paul did this, don't you? Because when he took the pen and he signed his own name in verse 19, there was a chain shackled to that wrist. Paul himself was a slave to Christ. And he didn't even, he didn't know about his situation in Rome, but he trusted the Lord. And we can't help but think about another father who sent his own son on a more extreme journey than the one Onesimus took. The journey from heaven to earth, the father sent the son. Only this father was absolutely certain what would happen to his son. He was certain what the world would do to him. For his son was not just chained. His son was crucified. Jesus came in peace, and we put him on a cross. And yet, the cross became the place, a bridge between ourselves and the Almighty. Jesus became my peace by taking responsibility for my peace. And he did this for the sake of love. Love makes all the difference. The poet wrote, I really wish I could blame somebody else. I wish I could place the responsibility on somebody else. I'd love to point the finger at somebody else. For a moment, I bought the lie that it was somebody else. There's always another sinner who can bear my fault. There's always some circumstance that can carry my blame. There's always some factor that made me do what I did. There's always somewhere else to point rather than looking at me. But in those dark moments, moments before sleep, the pain squeezes away my breath. There is no monster to hide from. There is no excuse that holds. My war is not external. My enemy is not outside. The struggle rages within me. Nowhere to point or run. No independent righteousness. No reason for smugness. I am my greatest enemy. And rescue is my only hope. So in the quiet night, I face the truth that I cannot blame somebody else and one more time, I close my eyes, admitting that my only hope is found in somebody else. <laughs>